Amy and I went up to Indiana last weekend, and I got to drive out to Wanamaker and visit my mom, spent some time with her, had a really nice time. And after that, I drove around Indianapolis for a few hours, and I was looking at a lot of the trees that I'd planted. And I got to visit the 7,000th tree I'd planted. I hadn't seen it since the day that I planted it about eight years ago, and it was doing really well. Then I went out at night to my old neighborhood in Broad Ripple and went to some of the bars that I used to hang out at. There was probably a 10-year span where I would spend at least five nights a week at these bars, and I wouldn't leave till 4 a.m. And uh, some really good years. But I got to see some of my old friends, and I heard there were some other friends of mine that were hanging out at the American Legion Hall. So I went ahead and walked over there, and I walked in, and the band was playing one of my songs. And it felt pretty damn great to be back in Indiana. Hi friends, this is Otis Gibbs and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my living room in East Nashville, Tennessee. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. And this show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's the creative individual and the person experiencing it. And everything else is an artificial filter. And this is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Tim Carroll. Tim is a singer, songwriter, and he's a great guitar player. And you can find out everything you need to know about Tim at ReverbNation.com slash Tim Carroll. I've known Tim for quite a while now, and he's one of the more hardworking people I've met. And I was trying to think of a story that could describe Tim to you guys and give you an idea of who he is. And I think the best story would be I crossed paths with him and he was touring with his wife, Elizabeth Cook, a couple years ago in Nottingham, England. And we'd all been out on the road for quite a while and just intersected. And they said that they'd done 10 or 11 dates in a row without an off day. And then on the first off day, Tim was looking for an open stage so he could go play. And I think that says an awful lot about Tim. I've never, ever heard of anyone else doing that. But uh, Tim invited me over to his house here in East Nashville, Tennessee, and we sat down on the couch and had this conversation. Here's Tim Carroll. I'm from Terre Haute, Indiana. I was born in Terre Haute. Uh, My parents lived outside of town, uh, over by the Illinois state line, west of Terre Haute, west of West Terre Haute. And um, so I grew up living out in the country, doing a lot of camping and riding horses and uh, riding bikes a million miles to the nearest friend's house. And um, a lot of stuff in the woods, a rural rural upbringing. But my dad lived in, my dad worked in Terre Haute, so, uh, and two of my older siblings, I was the youngest of four, uh, they went to school for some years, like in Terre Haute, so. I was real used to going into Terre Haute, into the city, quote unquote, all the time, you know, every day or every couple of days. And so I'm very attached to that city, although I never actually lived in it. Were you around people that played music at a young age? 
Yeah, not my family. My family were all fans of music. Um, but it seems like there were a lot of um, local rock and roll bands and stuff back then. This is like in the late 60s, early 70s when I was getting to that age. I was born at the end of 1959, so say I was 10 years old in 1969 or 70. And that's when I started playing gigs, um, like in the sixth grade, me and two other guys managed to get a couple of songs together as a little band, two, two electric guitars and drums. And we played in front of the whole school. And then we played in front of like all the parents uh, at a PTA night or so, a couple days in a row. And that was like the beginning of my playing, you know, gigging. But there were all these bands like older kids who were, you know, sort of hippies that were maybe five years older than me. Uh, some of them even lived out in the country there, like where I lived. And, and you would hear a band practicing in a barn or something and, and you'd go up to it, you know, and, and watch and stuff, which later happened to me when I was playing in bands. Kids would like wander through fields and find, I swear, like there's this great guitar player here in Nashville named uh, JT Cornfloss. He's a session guy and he's a really great guitar player and gets a lot of work and plays on a lot of sessions. Well, he's from Terre Haute. So somebody told me about him. And one day Elizabeth had a session. This is years ago now, six, eight years ago. Somebody mentioned that the guitar player out there, I came walking in to the control room just to say hi. And they were having this big session. And, and somebody mentioned the guitar player out there is JT Cornfloss. So I thought, oh, I want to meet this guy. He's from Terre Haute, you know. So I go out there. I go, hi, my name's Tim Carroll. I'm from Terre Haute. And I heard that you are too and wanted to meet you. And he goes, Tim Carroll, he goes, you're from over by West Terre Haute, aren't you? And I go, actually, yes. And he goes, and you used to have a green Tysco guitar, right? And I was like, wow. I hadn't thought about that in a long time. He goes, one, one time when I was about nine years old, I watched your band practice one day for about four hours. <laughs> and, and we figured it out where I was about 13, he was nine. And he said he he... He was at some friend's house, so they heard a band practicing, and they all like wandered through a field and climbed fences and stuff and, and watched us. And I had done the same thing with older kids, you know. So, yes, there was a culture of bands and people playing rock and roll music and stuff where I grew up. Well, let's see. When I moved to Bloomington, my background was more like, you know, the rock and roll of the 60s and, and everything. And then... Um, Southern rock happened, and I was really into that when I was in high school. And then when I went to college in Bloomington, I get there, and I like got to be serious about school and try not to flunk out. I didn't even take my guitar with me at first because I was like trying to focus on school and not not flunk out, not like take my guitar down there and you know get right at that. Um, all these kids were down there uh, uh, listening to jazz music in the dorm at IU, and and I had never been exposed to that before. This crazy jazz music, Miles Davis and, and Coltrane and all the old greats. And um, so that was like this totally trippy music I'm hearing for the first time ever. Um, and then it turns out that Bloomington is this kind of cultural oasis in Indiana where a lot more like arty things happen. And uh, uh, people are there from all over the world coming to the school for a brief time and it's just a town that's much more cosmopolitan, I think, than a lot of Indiana towns. Bloomington turned out to be this kind of already creative place. 
And I started seeing things like little fanzines laying around the record stores, and you know, you'd read through them about reading about music, and, and there would be ads in the back. And I remember at one point the Gizmo is like, they they probably advertised one of their EPs, you know, in the in the back of this fan, fanzine that was laying around the record store. And at, at one point they even ran an ad like they were they were recruiting a band member or something like that. And I thought how cool that was, you know, but I didn't respond to it or anything. Uh, so there's a swirl of uh, music uh, happening. And, and uh, um, at some point, I lived in a house where there in Bloomington where um, we had a room that we kind of devoted to our band room. You know, we jam in there all the time. And all these different cats, some of whom I still know, would come through there and we would jam and try to make get a band together or something. And one night, um, somehow I met one of the guys that was in the Gizmos. Actually, I met one of the original Gizmos, Davey Medlock. And he came over a couple times and sang and stuff while we, and we jammed. And then he brought over Billy Nightshade, who, who was the current uh, bass player in the Gizmos at that time. And Billy and I threw together a little band and did a show that was like one of those WQAX benefits or something in Bloomington, a local radio station. Um, and we, we, we did this one-off gig and anyway, Billy and I hit it off and he thought I played well. And so when the gizmos once again needed a, a replacement guitar player, I kind of was on the inside track and got to go audition and I got the gig. I don't know how many people auditioned, maybe only a couple, maybe one. <laughs> but uh, anyway, I, so then that from that time on the gizmos was me and Billy Nightshade and Dale Lawrence and Shadow Myers. And, um, we started playing. This is 1979. We started playing around Bloomington, and um, I did my first road trip ever that year. I guess we drove to Detroit and played two nights at a place called Bookies, and we did a swimming pool party in Hannah, Indiana, where Dale was from, to round out our weekend. W one night we played at a place called the Bass Saloon. I think that was what it's called on the outskirts of Bloomington. And it was kind of a hard rock. See, there were no punk rock clubs back then. Punk rock was like kind of barely heard of. And what you'd heard of it was not good. And even me, whatever I'd heard of it, it was not good. It was like, oh, these guys don't even, it's not even real music. They can't even play. All these really incredibly negative things, you know. And um, anyway, so gigs weren't, you know, there weren't zillions of them. So we're playing it at this sort of hard rock club called the Bass Saloon. And in come these two guys sit right in front of us and act like they think we're really good and they seem kind of cool and stuff. And turned out they were the two guys from Dow Jones and the Industrials. And they had come to Bloomington because of Gulcher Records. They thought, oh, there's a new wave punk rock label in Indiana because these guys are living in Lafayette and they're the only ones doing what they're doing. You know, just like we were the only ones doing what we were doing in Bloomington. So they came to our gig because they had come to Bloomington, had met Bob Richard, and then he'd say, oh, the Gizmos are playing tonight over at the Bassline. So they came to us. We became friends with them. They gave us their demo tape, which we were amazed at. We were blown away. We were like, oh, my God, they're good. They've got a couple of hits here, you know, and plus they're fun to hang out with. And so that from then on, we had this camaraderie. We had these two bands now in Indiana, and um, then we drove up to record more music at their – studio in Lafayette and recorded like I don't know the second half of our album there or something like that I 
I'd have to really think about it to remember the exact. But so, so we recorded up there in Lafayette, and then we played a few shows with those guys too, where in Indianapolis and in Lafayette and in uh, Blo- uh, Bloomington. And one of the shows, the we played a party in West Lafayette with them, and that's coming out on Gulture Records this year, thirty years later. A show we did. It's called Gizmos Live at Purdue, and I think it should be called Gizmos Tuning because, like, the whole time we're like tuning our guitars. <laughs> we had just gotten professional enough, like we had just opened for the Ramones, I think, you know, and so we had just gotten professional enough to want to be in tune. But we weren't professional enough to have heard of a tuner yet. <laughs> so we, we used either a pitch pipe or a tuning fork or just like anything, a dial tone or something to tune to. Or we just tune to each other, you know, and not even be in tune. So this live record that's going to come out is us going near, 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 you know, trying to tune the whole time. It's insane. It is insane. You have to kind of get into it and like laugh with it. Can you tell me what your memories of opening for the Ramones were? Yeah, the Ramones, uh, we got that gig by begging for it. We, we heard the Ramones were going to come play at, um, it was called Oscars. Yeah, Oscars. The place is still there in Bloomington, but they call it something different now. Uh, kind of a big club right on like Walnut or Center College, one of those two big avenues. Um, and we heard the Ramones were coming, so we went up and met with the booking guy, and we were like, we're your boys. We we should be the guys that open for the, the Ramones when they come. And so we presented him with our stuff, and we sat there with him, and and he gave us the gig. And so we got to open for the Ramones. And um, I remember at Soundcheck, you know, watching them Soundcheck, and for years and years, I always remembered that Joey stood there with the mic stand, and you know how a singer will say, like, Check one, two, three, four, or something like that, right? He just kept going one, one, one. He never got past one. He kept saying one. And I always thought, oh, that's kind of funny. The Ramones were kind of a funny band. Well, after he died many years later, and I'm reading a book his brother wrote, I found out that he had obsessive compulsive disorder. That's why he couldn't get past one. He was one of those cats that like can't re- leave a room without flicking the light switch a certain number of times and stepping on each step and he'd have to go back and do it again. So it was like 30 years later, I found out about this thing at Soundcheck where he's saying one, one. And then, and then the Ramones got interviewed, uh, Johnny and Joey got interviewed by somebody there in the room while during Soundcheck. And outside of that, um, I just remember we had a great show. The place was packed. It elevated our status because it got us in front of more people the right people the right people um and in an impressive environment and then uh somebody stole Didi's leather jacket that night and then years later we were playing in hoboken and we were in maxwell's and the guy whoever it was that stole it like came to the show and was like hey this is the jacket i got that night you guys open for the round it's a weird world <laughs> the gizmos moved to new york in 1980 because we thought that we needed to get out of indiana go to where the action was you know looking back on it 
that was probably a mistake. If we'd have just hung around, the action was starting to catch up with us, you know. But at the time, we thought, let's go where the scene is, you know. And so we considered other cities, but we had friends who uh, were living in New York at the time who had lived in Bloomington. And they, they were like, come stay with us. You know, we have these two big apartments we just got in Hoboken. They, they were living in the village, but then they got these two big places in Hoboken that were like connected. They said, you won't have to pay rent here. It'll be like Warhol's factory, man. It'll be all creative. And, you know, about three weeks later, they were like, okay, you got to pay rent now. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, we up and moved, you know, um, straight away uh, and crashed in on Hoboken and, the first night there, you know, I look out the window and you can see the Empire State Building right out your window. And it was like, wow, we're really here, you know. And that first night, I think we walked down the street and went to Maxwell's. And uh, there was, you know, a very cool scene unfolding there. And uh, But moving to New York was brutally hard, too, because all of a sudden we had to, like, adjust to an urban life. And as I said, very soon after, they started wanting us to pay rent. And so that... We had to get little jobs and stuff, and it was like a hot, sweaty summer. The, the PATH train went on strike right a, a few days after we arrived, so we had to take buses into Manhattan and back instead of the convenient train. And um, also, we um, a week into being there, we had picked up a drummer right before we left Indiana because our old drummer did not want to move, didn't want to leave Indiana. Shadow Myers didn't want to move. He had too much going on he owned a couple businesses and houses and stuff and was married um so we took this drummer with us after a week he disappears i've never seen him again <laughs> i know that he's not dead or anything because he i've heard that right away he moved back to indiana and went back to his old band or something but he just disappeared in the middle of the night which even to I'm amazed he snuck past us, you know, like <laughs> with his drum kit and everything. How did he do that, you know? But and, and did he get a taxi? How did he do it, you know? But I don't know. So we lost our drummer. We, you know, it was a hard place to live. We had to run ads in the Village Voice to get a new drummer right away, and we didn't have a telephone. And so we like put the phone number of the phone booth that we could see out our window in the ad, like call this number. You know, we we need a drummer, and then. Then we thought, oh, we should have like put certain hours because we can't be out there all the time, right? So for the first week that our ad ran, it's like we'd walked out there once in a while and the uh, phone's not ringing. Okay. <laughs> Stupid. Don't give a pay phone address for where to call. So the next week we run another ad and we go, okay, call between like four and six, you know, in the evening or something. And we went down there and we would stand there and wait and the phone would ring and people would call, you know, and hey, and we auditioned about a dozen drummers, I bet. And we picked a guy who turned out to be a good drummer, but just a crazy mofo that we didn't get along with all that well. Uh, so things were a little hard. And, the, and the, the club scene was changing in New York. The punk rock scene was sort of like playing itself out a little bit by 1980 when we moved there. And... Uh, the original bands were kind of gone. They'd either broken up or kind of become huge and gotten signed away. Or the scene was just changing. Um, there were different types of dance music evolving, new wave dance music. Uh, hip hop started happening that summer. Like those songs like The Message and stuff started getting blasted out of beatboxes like that summer. Basically, rap arrived about the same time we did in New York. Uh, a lot of things happened to make it like a hard thing, just moving to New York and becoming a, a band in a 
playing in the bars all the time. But we played about once a month, probably that first year. Um, and we played, you know, CBGBs and Trudy Hellers and Botany 500. And I'd have to keep thinking some of these places no longer exist. In fact, none of those places <laughs> exist that I've just named. Well, after the Gizmos were there for about a year, uh, we broke up. For, first, I was getting disgusted with the, the, the whole situation. The, I was the youngest one in the band, and I kind of looked to those guys for leadership. And at some point, I realized these guys are not leading very well, you know, and yet they're treating me like a real subordinate where I can't really take the reins here and improve the situation very much. So I was like, you know, I think it's time for me to just, I think it's getting dysfunctional and I think I'll bail. And, and I did. And, and, uh, then they played like one more gig and then it was kind of over, you know? And, um, so for years I kept piddling around with my guitar, but I didn't really, take the idea of being in a band seriously or playing gigs. And so for like five years, I never played a gig, never tried to, and didn't really seriously do any band stuff. Although I did mess around with my guitar and messed around with songwriting all the time at home when I would come home from my job. And my jobs during those times were down on Wall Street. Um, that got started because um, when the gizmos had to get some sort of jobs to pay our rent, I went to a temp agency. Um, I could type real fast. So they sent me out to offices, you know, take little jobs, you know, each day, those little temp jobs. And at some point they sent me down to a Wall Street brokerage firm to type checks or something for them to fill in for somebody. And after a few weeks, those people hired me and I, I was able to make a little bit more money, you know, just being there permanently. And I wound up kind of getting into it and thought it was kind of cool. And I was a clerk down there on Wall Street at like three different companies over a period of eight years or something. But those, but the after about five years of not playing any gigs or anything, um, all these uh, influences that I had from the past, um, such as all the rock and roll I'd grown up with and played in bands. And then, uh, I didn't mention it, but very soon after we moved to Hoboken, we met the band Rank and File. We happened to walk in in Maxwell's one night when it was their very first gig that they'd done and after moving there and became friends with them because we were trying to find a drummer. And I asked Chip Kimmon, hey, your drummer is great. Do you know of any other drummers? And he goes, here's my phone number. I got a friend that's moving to town. Why don't you call me? And yeah, I'll give you his number when he gets here. So after a few weeks or something, I called him and we hung out and we our two bands became friends. And rank and file were former punk rockers from California. They were in the Dills and the, the Nuns, and they uh, had decided to become a country band. A kind of a weird concept at that in 1980. Now it doesn't sound weird at all, but it did then. And um, we had been listening to a lot of country music, but we had never considered playing it. All right. That's Ernest T who never speaks. <laughs> Every once in a while he does that. Um, we'd never considered playing country music, but just listening to it, you know. And here was rank and file. They were like wanting to play it for real. And and they were like super cool dudes. And and um I mean the least cool guy in their band practically was Alejandro Escovedo Escovedo, you know. So must have been a pretty cool band, right? <laughs> <laughs> and um uh so this country 
influence came in on me because those guys turned me on to a bunch of old records and books and things. And, and uh, so all this stuff is like festering or whatever the word is in my mind for like five years while I'm working these jobs and, and I'm playing my guitar and trying to learn how to write songs and all these influences. And at some point, I accidentally sort of got playing in a country bar every Saturday night with another guy. We just accidentally, we got the gig. We walked into this bar, jukebox was blasting. The only person in there was this big bartender woman with a blonde wig on. Anyway, next thing you know, we're working every Saturday night. And that sort of got me back into the whole thing of gigging and, and the whole bug for it. And um, wasn't too long after that, I probably wrote, If I Could, Then I Would, my, my song that was a big life changer because it um, eventually got recorded by many people, the first of whom was John Prine. And um, uh, that happened because I had made a trip to Nashville, played my songs for a few people, and it found its way to him. That's before I moved to Nashville. Um, these music publisher publishers that got into that song and one or two others of my songs brought up the idea, hey, you should move to Nashville and you could write for our publishing company. And um, that opened my eyes to a very different life. Uh, at that point, I was playing five nights a week in Manhattan bars um, with my band, the Blue Chieftains. And these guys offer this idea of living in Nashville, getting paid to be a songwriter. I thought that sounded really neat. And like I could get past the glass ceiling I was at of playing in the bars for 50 bucks a night. You know? So I moved to Nashville just as their company sort of lost its funding. Um, so that publishing deal did not happen, but I thought, well, you know, those guys wanted to do it. I'll find somebody else maybe who, who would do that. Or that. That's the life I'm going to chase. So I moved here to like pursue that. And that never happened. I never accomplished that. I never got like a real staff writing, uh, country songwriting, you know, publishing deal. But I started playing in all the bars and coffee shops and stuff in Nashville all the time and playing with a bunch of different people. And after about four years, I had a record deal with Sire Records. Um, which is not a Nashville label, it was a New York label, but uh, I got it by sending my tape to Andy Paley and he, he and Seymour Stein signed me to Sire. Um, so that was something beyond my wildest dreams, to tell you the truth. Many of my punk rock heroes had been on that label. And um, it goes to show you that, you know, if you're, if you're pursuing what you're trying to get, which is I was trying to become a staff songwriter, but, and I just wouldn't give up. I never got it. I never got my goal, but I got these other goals, you know, that were actually better. That's a great lesson. Yeah. And I've had a lot of things happen like that. So you got to be trying, but you may not get what you're trying for, but you got to be trying and you get something. I remember being down here about eight or nine years ago and hanging out with you and Dale Lawrence and, uh, I picked up the Tennessean that morning, and I don't remember if it was a Peter Cooper article or not. But there was an article about Lower Broad and the resurgence, and they were talking of giving all of the credit to the resurgence of Lower Broad uh, to BR549, Greg Gehring, and you. 
Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, we built that damn Batman building. No. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, I was pretty proud of you at that point. Uh, sitting, you know, to see people recognizing that. Yeah. Well, Lower Broad was a rougher place back then. And the Ryman was not open at that point. The Batman building was being built. Um, so the first time I rolled into Nashville, Lower Broad was one of the first places I wound up sitting and having a drink. And right away, the dude on stage goes, here, man, you play guitar here. Hands me the guitar, and I'm like up on stage playing. I've just arrived. <laughs> now I'm up on stage playing, and I'm like sweating like crazy, going, oh, my God, the pressure's on. You know, now I look back zero pressure playing on lower broadway <laughs> but you know at the moment i wasn't ready and he just threw me into it but um was that roberts or layla's i or? think that was at jerry and wanda's or something which now is legends okay um somebody in wanda i know that because i met wanda eventually <laughs> she had white go-go boots she was about 70 <laughs> and uh but i was playing at, as I mentioned earlier, at like, it, when I came down to Nashville, I started doing the gigging thing, kamikaze, not kamikaze, commando, you know, guerrilla style, just like I had in New York when I was in the Blue Chieftains. I scraped up every gig that there was in Manhattan, like every new restaurant or whatever that opened that was going to have a band. I was in there, man, right away. And I and my whole goal was always to like, if I can just get like four or five regular gigs every week. We're making a living. We're doing it, you know. But when I came to Nashville, I tried to do the same thing. I just tried to play everywhere, and um, it was kind of working out. You know, I was getting mentioned in the paper a lot and stuff. And at some point, I uh, uh, crossed paths with Greg Gehring. I think it was because it was a New Year's Eve show at the Exit Inn, and I was on the bill, and he was on the bill. And he took a liking to my song songwriting right away. And, and just he sort of just like right away just – started calling me up and asking me to come do things with him and stuff. And we started playing at a coffee shop on second Avenue called jitters. That was open for a while. And, um, we started walking around the corner to where BR five, four, nine had started playing at Roberts. And this is back before it was all groovy down at Roberts. Like I think they were playing with the fluorescent lights still on and stuff. And, and Roberts might have even been called Three Doors Down, actually, at that time. I don't think it was even called Roberts. And Greg uh, got a gig playing in the back room at Tootsie's and asked me to open for him, and I did that. And then he got like a gig in the even further back room, which didn't even have a roof on it. It had a tarp over it. Now it has a roof on it. It's like right at the alley um, behind Tootsie's. And... um we started doing this thing where every Friday and Saturday we would but kind of play all night. Like my band would open, then he would play, then I'd play again, then he'd play again. And we kept alternating sets and we'd do that on Friday and Saturday night. And it started really becoming a really hot thing between what BR549 playing down there at Roberts and that was growing like crazy. And then we're up there in the back room at Tootsie's and it starts getting really cool. People started really coming down there you know because like all of a sudden it, within about 25 feet you could see all these different things happening i mean I, I hate to say we raised the stakes during that time but the place got a lot cooler and when bigger crowds come more musicians more good musicians start vying for all those gigs so the the, the level uh, of play down on lower broadway i think got a little higher after that period because of 
you know, when everybody saw the crowds that were coming in Roberts and stuff, that'll give you a kick in the pants. So, and like Lucinda Williams uh, was coming down all the time to our gigs and she'd be sitting there and there wouldn't even be, it wouldn't even be that crowded there in that Tootsie's thing and all night. And she'd sit in with us. And, uh, and then at some point she and my bass player, Richard Price, uh, uh, took up a romantic relationship and were an item for about four or five years after that. So there was that sort of hip factor, you know, one of the great singer-songwriters in America sitting there hanging with you at your little loser gig. Can you tell me how you met Elizabeth? How you guys met? Yeah, uh, that was... Uh, we met in a recording studio. The, the, the person that we had in common was a music publisher, and one of those original guys that brought me to Nashville and then their company fizzled out. You know, he later was for years now has worked at a big functioning music publisher. And he, at one point he was offering me a publishing deal. And that was right when I got my record deal with Sire. So I had to turn down his publishing deal because like I was moving on to bigger and better things, you know, but um, later they hired me to, play guitar on a, se- a songwriter session of theirs and while i was there i met elizabeth and they the guy said hey this is elizabeth we signed her to a writing deal she got the deal that you turned down and uh so i met her and i was like wow that's a girl you would marry a girl like that and that, i remember that being the flash that went through my mind <laughs> the first time i saw elizabeth and that's totally weird because now i've been married to her for 10 years but I didn't. I didn't meet her again for like six months after that, and then they they asked me to play. She called me, I guess, to play guitar with her, and for a gig that she had, and I took her up on that. And then, um, not too long after that, we started dating, and uh, we were engaged for three years and been married for ten. Did she remember the initial uh, session? Yeah, we even have a photo of that day, that first day we ever met. There's like twelve of us lined up, and. <laughs> There we all are, and that's the day we met. And we didn't know we would go on to be married. Horrible gigs where something goes wrong. There's been a lot of this. <laughs> In fact, I think that's why we get paid. It's like, okay, it's one thing to play music, but it's another to play them under play it under really difficult circumstances. And I think that it's most of the time the gigs are like everything going wrong all the time. And so you're up there like toughing it out, like sweating bullets and go, ooh, we gotta get through this. And that's what you're getting paid for, you know, not the playing and the singing and the writing. It always your work ethic has always struck me. I remember we were in Nottingham and you guys had been out for about three weeks and we crossed paths at a gig and uh Elizabeth and Bones were talking about a couple nights before that you guys had played maybe ten or eleven nights straight. You had an off night and you went looking for an open stage so you could play. I went tried to get on an open mic, yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. just, that doesn't happen. That's beautiful. What was totally twisted about that one was we're sitting in the laundromat. We got the day off and I go, man, I'd like to play an open mic or something if there's one around here anywhere. And uh, the uh, road tour manager guy with me go asks another patron at the laundromat, hey, do you know where there's an open mic around here? I was like, he's not going to know. And the guy goes, yeah, right down here at this bar, right down here. <laughs> So the tour manager guy goes, see, and he looks it up on his computer real fast, like, you know, to get the, the, uh, you know, the latest, like, what are people saying about this, this place? And it says, don't go here ever. <laughs> That's the review of the place. 
So I said, I'm going to go check this out. This sounds cool. <laughs> so I went down and, you know, it was kind of like, don't go there ever. It was kind of like that, you know. But I was trying to play on a night off at an open mic, which I did also. We were in California and opening for Todd Snyder uh, on a little string of runs. And we had a, a string of dates and we had um, a night off. And I looked up an open mic and drove to it by myself and sat and waited well, my turn. And some of the other cats that were doing it, I got a big kick out of them. I remember there was a guy named North Bay Bill. And he, he he did his songwriter thing, you know. And then I got up there and they were like, do you want to plug your guitar in or want to put the mic on it? And I go, oh, let's do both. And she puts her hands on her hips and goes, I think that'd be overkill, don't you? <laughs> and, <laughs> so I was put in my place at that open mic. But I, play, I performed my songs and... Uh, Always looking for my big break, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I did meet him that at that time when he recorded the song. It was in a studio in Memphis called Kiva, I think. And uh, Keith Sykes was producing the session. And uh, I met some of the guys that played on the song. They had just recorded it when I showed up down there. But John was there and I talked to him briefly a couple times that day and um and i think the only other time i remember meeting him was uh years later i was playing at the sutler here in nashville and he would go down and shoot pool at that billiards hall downstairs and uh somebody saw him walk by and after a while a couple people i knew kind of went and got him they were kind of like hey come up here you know this guy that you know tim carroll you know his song and and he came up there and I think right when he walked in, like my bass player got lost in the song and the song kind of just like train wrecked ended. <laughs> and I was like, I'm sure that really impressed the heck out of Mr. Prine. And, <laughs> and people were kind of talking to him cause he's a, considered a big star here and everything. And, and, uh, maybe everywhere. And, um, so people were, you know, bending his ear. And, and so I just kind of stayed way over on my side and I didn't want to bug him. And plus my, band was falling apart right in front of his eyes and but after a while he came over to me and he talked to me and talked about that song and um uh he he was very nice to me but i i i wouldn't say that i know him very well or anything i can't imagine a bigger compliment somebody you know prime wanting to record one of your songs yeah like until he recorded my song i did not know that that was a real song i thought it was something that sounded like a song I mean, that is true. That probably sounds like I'm joking around, but um, I didn't think I really wrote songs. I thought I was still imitating songs. I was trying to write songs. And then, boom, the one, the, I write this one in five minutes, and one of the most famous songwriters around covers it. And, I, and he's a guy that like never covers anybody's songs. So it really blew my mind, and it's probably a big reason why I'm still doing this today because it was like, oh, wow, maybe I really could do this. And if, and if I did that a few times, it would be a career, you know. So I've been pursuing that kind of ever since then, although I try not to be very self-conscious about it. I never write a song with somebody in mind for it. I, the only person in mind for it is me when I write a song. And it, it's just I want to write something good enough that I can stand there and proudly sing in front of people. And then I, it's, I've found that if you do that and you keep doing it over and over and you whittle it down to the best ones when it comes time to make a record and all that, and you get your records out there, that every once in a while somebody uh, covers one of your songs. 
And it's so, as I say, I try not to be self-conscious about it. But in the, the end game is always kind of like, gee, I hope people love my song and want to sing it, you know. But but uh, it always just starts with me trying to create one that I can proudly stand there and sing and not cringe in front of people. And then it kind of goes from there. I appreciate you uh, inviting me into your living room. and Man, thanks so much for having me on this. I am uh, very proud to be a part of this tradition that you are creating. Uh, it, hopefully it wasn't too painful or anything. And not at all. Not Ernest, at all. I knew it wouldn't be. Ernest T. seemed to appreciate it. <laughs> I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank Tim for inviting me over to his living room here in East Nashville, Tennessee. And you can find out everything you need to know about Tim at ReverbNation.com slash Tim Carroll. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to OtisGibbs.com and you can pick up a CD, a t-shirt, you can download any record I've ever made, you can buy one of my photographic prints, you can buy one of Amy's records, you can buy one of Amy's children's books. But anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment. Subscribe while you're there, and you'll get a brand new episode for free every Wednesday. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.